0: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast, and I have Mayor Kreiger. Uh, he's the author of a book called Principles and Practice of Sleep Medicine. Uh, he's a Dr. MD and a F.R.C.P.C. He joined the Yale School of Medicine and the VA Connecticut Health System in uh, 2011, and he was uh, previously a professor of medicine at the University of Manitoba. Uh, long background in sleep and uh, breathing and sleep. So, uh, Mayor, thank you for coming. How are you doing?
1: Oh, I'm doing great. How are you?
0: Good, good. So tell me uh, what what got you interested in the sleep field and then um you know, over the years what have you been studying in regards to sleep and breathing and you know what kind of conclusions have you come to?
1: Well I um I got interested in in, in sleep in the early nineteen seventies when I had a patient that had a sleep disorder and it became pretty obvious to me at the time that hardly anybody knew anything about sleep and uh and this was an area that i found fascinating and i basically uh it became my career sleep, sleep medicine sleep physiology understanding sleep uh became my career and and at the time there was really no field but it, but over over time the, the the sleep field evolved and now there's there's someone uh virtually everybody knows someone who has a sleep disorder that is being treated
0: mm. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. So, how has your research evolved? You know, over the years, you've been doing this a long time. You know, what yeah. would have been some of the high points of the research, and you know, then we'll get into what the latest stuff you're working on is.
1: Yeah. So, so the 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 first case report that I ever that I ever wrote up that was published was about a, a patient that ended up having something called sleep apnea, which at the time the terminology did not even exist. And it was really the first, as far as I can tell, it was the first reported case of sleep apnea in, in North America. And huh. the thinking at that time was that it was really rare, that sleep apnea was not a common problem, was very rare. Um, and then what became apparent in the next 20 years uh, is that not only is sleep apnea not rare, it's extremely common. And it's probably f- found in about 5 to 10% of men and probably roughly about maybe 2 to 5% of women. So we're talking about a very, very common problem.
0: Yeah, I didn't realize it was so common. Um, and how does uh, sleep apnea apparently correlate with age and weight and, and other factors?
1: Well, so sleep apnea is much, much more common in people who are overweight. And uh, initially, we thought that all the cases of sleep apnea were going to be associated with someone being uh, overweight or obese. And it turns out that that's not, uh, that there are many people, in fact, millions of people that have sleep apnea who are not obese. And so ab- abnormalities in, in the anatomy of the face, a small jaw, big tonsils and adenoids, they can all cause sleep apnea. And whereas and originally sleep apnea was thought to be a disease primarily of men. In fact, some people didn't believe it occurred in women. We now know it's extremely common in women, and and quite a bit of my research had to do with uh, w- with uh, sleep apnea in females.
0: So yeah, what have so what have you discovered over the years about apnea? It's far more common than we thought. It occurs in men and women. Uh, what other trends or interesting things are jumping out at you? Yeah,
1: so so, so so one of the uh, uh, one of the papers that I did that I thought was pretty. Uh, important uh, um, was in the late 80s, uh, we actually did a study of a very large number, over 200 patients who had sleep apnea who were basically untreated. And when I say untreated, that was an era when we really didn't have what, what I would call um, non-invasive therapy. The only treatment uh, we had in the mid-80s was to put a hole into somebody's windpipe. And there was really no other treatment that that was really available. And by that time, um, uh, we had a very large number. And it turned out that patients who who stopped breathing more than 20 times an hour who were untreated actually had an increased death rate. So uh, that was one of the first studies that actually showed that untreated sleep apnea can actually result in death.
0: What's the clinical definition of sleep apnea? Is it the amount of time you stop breathing or the number of times or a combination?
1: Well, it it really ends up being a, a combination and it and and one of the you know one of the metrics that we use is called apnea hypopnea index which is the number of times you stop breathing in an hour and and so we look at that and the average patients that we see in in any big clinic would be somewhere stopping breathing about 25 to 30 times an hour. Um, and and in, in addition to that, we, all, we always pay attention to whether or not their blood oxygen level goes to very low values. And if it goes to very low values, that's really very concerning because many organs in, in your body, particularly the brain, require normal levels of oxygen. So when you stop breathing, your oxygen level drops, and that can be quite dangerous. Uh, so well, that is something
0: uh, else. What, what are normal levels and what are considered to be low and super low levels?
1: Yeah, so so normally people would have a blood oxygen level, uh, we call that oxygen saturation, of greater than uh, 90%, let's say 95%. If I measured your blood oxygen you're a healthy non-smoker it would be somewhere about 95% uh patients with uh sleep apnea will will spend probably anywhere between 5 and 20% of the night with uh, in most patients with a blood oxygen level of less than 90% and in some patients the blood oxygen level will reach into the 50s and 60s which is like yeah. you're on a 25,000 foot mountain so that people can have yeah, it it that's like already dangerous.
0: Hmm. What um so apnea is the number of times that you stop breathing in an hour. But what about the duration? You know, what if someone is yeah, so, uh so, they're stopping breathing mm, ten times and it's only for ten seconds,
1: let's say. Yeah. So on the so um we think that an event is has to be longer than ten seconds. So so that's the minimal criteria for an adult. For a child, it would be much less. It would be in the order of anywhere between two and five seconds.
0: Well, uh, okay. So, what are some of the effects that you've observed in apnea, and how long do they take to manifest?
1: Well, I mean, some of the things that happen happen very quickly. Um, In other words, we can measure when we're doing a sleep study. We we measure heart rate. We measure we we do the electrocardiogram. We measure blood oxygen level. Um, And so we can see right away that somebody's blood oxygen level drops during the study. We can also see that electrocardiogram can become acutely abnormal during a study, and people may have premature uh, ventricular beats, abnormal heartbeats, or they may develop an abnormal cardiac rhythm, uh, which can then be sustained, and that in itself can also be quite dangerous. So those are the the acute effects. Also, um, acutely, the blood pressure goes up. Now, chronically, uh, you know, outside of the the sleep study, we know that there are many other things that that happen. We know that uh, patients can develop um, uh, heart disease. They can develop hypertension. They can have strokes. So these are all, these have all been associated with with, uh, sleep apnea. And the commonest uh, symptom that someone, that a patient has, uh, is, is, is not, um, you know, isn't related to hypertension. The commonest symptom that we see in patients with sleep apnea is that they're very, very sleepy during the daytime.
0: Mm. Are they narcoleptic or are they just sleepy and they don't well, seem to get any yeah. rest?
1: So the term narcolepsy um, is, is often not used correctly. Narcolepsy is a very specific disease that has certain manifestations, uh, and one of which is being very, very sleepy. They have uh, what we call excessive daytime sleepiness. They fall asleep at the wrong time, at the wrong place. They will fall asleep driving. They fall asleep in waiting rooms. They fall asleep uh, at work, uh, sitting in front of a computer, for example, So, so they are very, very sleepy, and as such, they can be a hazard to other people.
0: And to themselves, yeah, that makes sense.
1: Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So, so for example, you wouldn't want a truck driver, for example, to have untreated sleep apnea or somebody that drives um, a locomotive. You don't want a locomotive engineer to have uh, untreated sleep apnea. There have been, for example, crashes of trains with, uh, uh, where the engineers fell asleep and indeed had uh, untreated sleep apnea. So what
0: happens if uh, someone has, you know, they're on their way to sleep apnea? You know, let's say they come and they do a sleep study and they stop breathing 20 times an hour, but it's only for like eight seconds on average. You just say, yeah, you're fine. You know, go take a hike. Or is there another? Does this still affect the body negatively? Does this still hurt the person?
1: Well, it depends on whether the person has symptoms. If the person has symptoms... Uh, then we would worry about it. Um, for example, if a person has what you described, short episodes uh, and, and each episode would be terminated being up for, for a few seconds. If a person has like hundreds of these events during the night and the person had daytime sleepiness or had heart disease or had hypertension, we would more aggressively want to treat them.
0: Mm. So, you know, back in the old days, you said, uh, tracheotomy was the only way to treat people. Now, I guess we have CPAPs and BiPAPs. And, you know, can you go over some of the um, treatment methodologies and, you know, the, you know, mouth guards that extend the jaw? I mean, what are some of the ways that apnea can be treated and what's the efficacy of them?
1: Yeah. So um, as we talked about earlier, many of the patients are overweight. And so the, so encouraging patients to be overweight uh, to To get rid of their overweight condition is a very important because if they lose enough weight, they can actually uh, have their apnea cured. Uh, and 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 you know related to that is is and I'll just give you an example. I saw a patient today in clinic that had a body mass index of seventy, which is like double what a normal body mass index should be. So w- we're talking about a person that has you know two hundred pounds of fat uh, in their body over and above their, their, um, their normal weight. So, uh, so one of the considerations for people like that, uh, might be, well, uh, let's talk about bariatric surgery. Maybe you're a candidate for bariatric surgery. Obviously that surgery is not going to cause people to lose weight really quickly. So if they had significant sleep apnea, we would treat the, the, the apnea. So what are the options? So the the options are CPAP, which is which stands for continuous positive airway pressure. That's a mask that fits over the nose and mouth, connected to a, a blower that generates pressure, and the pressure right. keeps the breathing passage open. And there are variants of CPAP. Uh, some of the machines have what we call a fixed pressure, just a re, just a straight pressure. Other uh, machines we call them auto titrating machines. Which adjust themselves based on whether the person's airway is is closed, partly closed, or or open. So when the airway is open, the machine doesn't give a lot of pressure. When the airway is closed, it generates the pressure. So these are called auto-adjusting uh, machines. Then there are what are called bipap machines, which which have two different pressures. And these uh, machines actually not only do they open the breathing passage that they they are uh, they also help the person breathe um as well if they're having a condition where they need help breathing, and then we have mm. patients that ultimately need ventilators, an actual ventilator that breathes for them when they're sleeping, and we tend to use that kind of treatment in people who have sleep apnea to some neurological conditions okay yeah so the the other treatment that is frequently used. Is a dental appliance which, as you mentioned, brings the lower jaw up and forward, and and it opens the breathing passage. So if you if you bring your jaw forward, it brings your tongue forward, and it opens up the breathing passage behind the tongue. And so we treat patients with these kind of dental appliances, and many patients actually do very very well with these appliances.
0: Hmm. So that would be it. Would look like I guess maybe like a mouth guard that you put in and it makes your yeah, jaw, yeah. your bottom jaw, let's say, move forward.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and these appliances, uh, they're, it's best – I mean, you can buy appliances on the web and stuff like that, which are not custom-made. And my experience is that they don't really work very well for, for most patients. Uh, the ones that are actually fabricated uh, by a dentist usually work way better um, because they're actually uh, made uh, – so that they fit the patient's teeth perfectly. Mm, okay.
0: Do, do most dentists know that this can be done or do you have to find a specialty dentist to do something like
1: this? Yeah. So most dentists know about it, but most dentists do not know enough about it to actually uh, be effective in treating uh, 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 patients with sleep apnea. So there are dentists that, that you know, who, uh, who've actually trained in, in sleep disorders, who have trained in sleep apnea and, and know a great deal about how to evaluate the patient and, and, and how to, uh, how to fit the appliance and how to adjust it. So, um, so if someone is going that route, they should always, uh, they should always, um, actually uh, find out whether the dentist they're going to has experience and training in, in sleep.
0: And what do they call this apparatus? Does it have a specific name?
1: Uh, well, uh, a mandibular advancement device is one name where we just say oral appliance for the, um, uh, you know, if someone goes to a dentist and says, uh, you know, uh, uh, do you have anything to offer me for my sleep apnea? They're going to say either yes or no.
0: Okay. And what's the success rate of these kind of devices versus a CPAP or a BiPAP?
1: Okay. So, so CPAP um, is probably effective in about, Seventy to eighty percent of people, but there's a problem, and the problem is is that with a mask and pressure it isn 't necessarily comfortable for the patients in fact it 's not comfortable for the patients to be sleeping with something on your face with pressure being generated um, uh, via a mask so there's a real problem with compliance. What I mean by compliance is actually using the equipment, and there are many patients that actually um, the the machine works for them, but for one reason or another, they can't adjust to it, either because of discomfort, the pressure's too high, they're claustrophobic, they're anxious. So there are many reasons why patients don't use it. And probably the effectiveness uh, long-term, meaning that it works and they use it, is probably closer to about 60% uh, in, in most clinics.
0: Mm. And is there, um, when people stop using it after they've been using it for a while, is it even more dangerous? Is the body used to having it? And then when you withdraw it, can that lead to uh, death or other problems?
1: Well, okay. So the first day or two after someone stops using uh, CPAP, there's there, there's sort of a, uh, a, a an effect, a positive effect for a couple of nights. But after two, three, four nights of not using it, they're right back where where they started. So it doesn't get worse unless the person has put on a lot of weight or drinks alcohol or something like that. It'll generally go back to where the person was before.
0: Mm, okay. Uh, are there other methods to uh, you know to help people with sleep apnea? I mean, what if they say, oh, I'll just sleep on my side, or oh, I'll just use like breathe right nasal strips or something, or. Yeah. You know, are there any other uh, like, right, uh, remedies
1: that yeah, work? So, yeah, so Breathe Right nasal strips do not work for sleep apnea. Uh, there have been studies looking at that, and it, that just, you know, it just doesn't work. Sleeping on someone's side can be quite effective because some people only have their episodes of apnea when they're flat on their back. Uh, and so okay. sleeping on the side can be quite effective. All right. But it may not be effective in all cases, but it's just something to try maybe, perhaps. You mean sleeping on the side? It's usually, um, okay, so even if someone has severe sleep apnea, sleeping on their side won't get rid of it necessarily. In fact, usually won't, but it'll be um, their apneic episodes are not going to be as severe if they're on their side.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So, you know, you've been at this a very long time. What are some other intricacies of... uh, sleep and breathing that you can talk about? You know, what, what are you working on right now? And CPAPs have been around for a bit and, you know, the mandibular advancement devices are around. What's, now what are you working on? What's the next step for you?
1: So, so um, one of the things that, that our, our program at, at Yale is very interested in is, is, is evaluating patients while they're in the hospital. Because most of the time when we, when we do sleep studies, it's really an outpatient uh, process. Um, but there are many patients that come into the hospital who need to be evaluated and need to be treated. And typically what ends up happening, I don't know how uh, technical your audience is. Is your audience uh, uh, technical or more late?
0: Well, let's get a little bit technical and then I'll ask you for clarifications and we'll you know go up and down through okay. the yeah, latter. So,
1: so yeah. So we have patients who are in respiratory failure. They come in, uh, uh, they're in the intensive care unit. They, they have an endotracheal tube put in, a tube uh, uh, that's placed into their uh, trachea, and they're treated for their respiratory failure, and they also have a sleep-breathing disorder. So so before sending them home, we would like to know what their disorder is and how best to treat it. And this is a... a, a so... Um, what we're trying to do is to evaluate the patients in the hospital and get them started on treatment as fast as possible, because what ends up happening, if they go home, you know, they're in the ICU, they get better, they get sent home. If they don't get their, their sleep breathing disorder treated, they're right back in the hospital.
0: Mm. So, All right. In regards to sleep. So that's not sleep apnea. What are some of the reasons that people go into respiratory failure and you know, what are some of the treatments? Maybe like a quick overview of that.
1: Yeah, yeah, so so, um, so some of the patients will have sleep apnea and th- they will develop, let's say, heart failure or a bad infection, or they've taken a medication that will depress their breathing, um, and then they'll develop respiratory failure and, and uh, be admitted. And for extremely obese people, we have a, a condition that's called the obesity hypoventilation syndrome, that used to be called the Pickwickian syndrome. And patients with this, uh, they are extremely obese and they have hypoventilation, meaning that they they under-breathe both during the day and during the night. And these patients uh, will need to be treated as well. And so they can come into the hospital and they'll be intubated and then extubated, and then they need to be evaluated and started on treatment. And, and hmm. some of these patients, some of these hypoventilation patients, and some of them may have, for example, COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Some of those right. patients act, actually uh, may require not a CPAP or a BiPAP, but an actual ventilator uh, to treat them at home. Hmm. Okay.
0: Um, any other common uh, problems people have, you know, when they sleep at home? You know, people that are not in respiratory failure, but just are experiencing poor sleep I know there's no one answer to everything, but uh
1: yeah you know yeah. what are so,
0: like some of the most common mechanisms that cause people to have poor sleep
1: yeah so and 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 you know there's there's over eighty conditions that are sleep disorders and <laughs> and we see them all and and uh, some people have movement disorders, movement disorder, for example, restless leg syndrome where they have an irresistible urge to move their 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 legs or or other limbs. Uh, when they're sleeping, and this can really result in very significant insomnia and multiple awakenings during the night, and consequently daytime sleepiness. So that's a condition that we see quite frequently. Uh, we see patients with insomnia where there's no obvious cause of the insomnia, uh, and and we see quite a few patients with that insomnia. Uh, is, is sometimes it's not associated with anything. But very frequently, there are comorbid conditions such as depression, uh, anxiety, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder that can also result in patients um, having um, very, very poor sleep. And then we have patients that have a condition called narcolepsy, uh, where they, as we mentioned before, one of the symptoms is very severe sleepiness. But they also have a condition, uh, one of the other symptoms they have is called cataplexy. And with cataplexy, they have a sudden loss of muscle tone, which can be quite impressive or very, very subtle when they get angry or excited or Mm -hmm. emotional. Those patients also will have a a symptom called sleep paralysis. And with sleep uh, paralysis, they wake up out of sleep and they can't move. Mm -hmm. And that, as you might imagine, might be very, very scary. And the, uh, the other symptoms that they have um, is, are called hypnagogic hallucinations where they have very vivid dream imagery as they're falling asleep and sometimes even while they are awake. So that's um, a, a condition called narcolepsy. And right now um, in our clinic, we're actually doing, uh, we're involved in a clinical trial looking at medications to reduce these episodes of cataplexy. In patients with narcolepsy. And there's another group of patients that we see that have a condition called idiopathic hypersomnia. In other words, they're just sleepy, extremely sleepy. They don't have the clinical features of narcolepsy. And we're doing a clinical trial looking at a medication to make those patients more alert as well. So, um, uh, so there are many sleep disorders and, and there, there's a lot of research going on. Um, and, and it's, to me, it's an extremely exciting field.
0: So, okay. So, you know, last question or so, what, what do you see as the latest, what's happening now in sleep research in general, that's going to make a a big change in how people experience sleep?
1: Well, I I think, I think the next big thing that's going to happen is not necessarily going to be in the doctor's office um i i think patients are going to play a much bigger role in 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 actually deciding whether or not they they need care whether their problem um, is significant enough and how they can get at that uh, um uh, for example i uh, i wrote a book last year called the mystery of sleep and and this really is it's is for the public it's how do you know whether you have a sleep uh, disorder which is dangerous and needs to be treated um, and and then there are gadgets out there right now, hand, you know, that are connected to cell phones um, that actually can give you information about your sleep, um, and and some of the information may be accurate, and 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 in the future they're going to be much more accurate, as more and more players get into it. There are there are devices now that can measure blood oxygen level continuously. Uh, uh, over the night with in, with the information uh being collected by something the size of a postage stamp that sits on your forehead mm. um, and it talks to a cell phone and and so uh consumers in the future are going to be playing a much bigger role in in just knowing when they need to go and and see a professional and this era kind of reminds me of 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 the of of, of a time when uh, there was a time when a woman thought, you know, am I pregnant or not? She would go and see a doctor, and the doctor would, would do some some tests. Now, women don't do that anymore. If a woman thinks she's pregnant, she'll go into, you know, a drugstore, and she'll pick up a kit, and the kit will tell her whether she's pregnant. If she's pregnant, she'll then go to the doctor. If she's not pregnant, she'll say, okay, I'm not pregnant. I don't need to worry so so i think patients are going to get much more involved in 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 their own care and and having said that on all the cpap machines right now out there they um they all collect information that the patient um uh, how the patient is doing how long they're using the equipment and all that information can be it's on, it's in the machine and it can be transmitted to a program on the patient's smartphone and the patient can know how how they're doing.
0: Okay, that's very powerful. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: Well, very good. Well, Mayor, I, um, you know we're out of time, but I appreciate all your knowledge and experience, and uh, you know your insight. So, what what's the best way for people to get more info? You know, where can they get your book? Um, and well, what are some suggestions get, for them to yeah, learn more?
1: I mean, yeah, they can get my book anywhere. It's on Amazon. It's called Mystery of Sleep. Um, my surname is K-R-Y-G-E-R. It's a hard surname. Um, but, um, but uh, you know, and there are other books out there, but but patients need to be armed with knowledge. And, and without knowledge, they just can't make good decisions.
0: True. Very true. Well, very good. Well, Mayor, thank you for coming on the podcast today. I appreciate it.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Bye-bye and sleep well.